Amen. Morning, everybody. Uh, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Uh, in the bulletin that the ushers handed you when you came in, there's an insert. You can scan the QR code uh, on that insert and pull up a Bible app that you can follow along. Or if you need a Bible, there are red ones like this. And Jonah 4 is on page 845. Everybody having a good week? Kind of? Do you realize that this next week is the first day of spring? Tuesday is the first day of spring, the vernal equinox. And so that's always kind of cool, changing the seasons, praying for some rain to come with it. Uh, Everybody surviving March Madness? I'm like done. I'm a Buckeyes fan, so I don't have to care about March Madness at all anymore, which is good. Um, And hope everybody uh, had a good St. Patrick's Day. Um, If you get a chance this afternoon, if you haven't, if you don't know who St. Patrick is, if you don't know his story, um, check it out. Uh, you can a uh, quick Google search and Wikipedia. Uh, just an absolute um, amazing man of God, and his his sort of missionary uh, work in Ireland has uh, changed the world. And so, check out St. Patrick um, as just kind of something to do this weekend. And it will actually the story of St. Patrick fits really well in with the sermon this morning because uh, we're talking about forgiveness. And that's very much a a part of his story. I'll let you figure out uh, kind of those details and stuff. But today, the sermon title is um, A God Who Loves to Forgive. The God Who Loves to Forgive. Uh, Believing that this is how God is revealed throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, and ultimately in Jesus, that we worship the God who loves to forgive. And so... um, We want to look at Jonah chapter 4, and this is our fifth week in the story of Jonah. I hope, um, I I hope, I would love, again, I I said this a couple weeks ago, but I would love to hear from you. Like, what is God doing in your life through the story of Jonah? As you not only just like hear teachings on Sunday mornings, but maybe as you read it throughout the week or as you process it with whoever you do, whether that's your family uh, or missional community of some kind, as you are talking about this stuff. Sometimes people will say to me, Eric, hey, good sermon. Now, it doesn't happen very often, and none of you say that. Um, Sometimes uh, people will say that, hey, good sermon. And there's something inside of me that always wants to say, like, yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, Because the mark of a good sermon or a good, hey, this was a good Sunday morning, right? Like, what does that mean? What does that even mean, a good sermon, good worship? Um, I want to argue that it has nothing to do with how well the sermon was presented, It has nothing to do with, like, how great our worship sounded or anything like that. It has everything to do with the extent to which it transforms us. Like, when we say, like, hey, we'll see, it means, like, what will will it do for us on Wednesday? Will the teaching, will will, will God's word, will scripture, will our experience in worship together, will it transform the way we treat each other? Will it transform the way we treat our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends? That conversation on, on Wednesday. And so that's what, that's sort of the, the mark of whether something is good or not, is will we allow it to transform us? And uh, this, this teaching uh, for me on forgiveness, it, um, I've, been, I've been just sort of like wrestling with it all week. Um, and sermons are interesting because sometimes you, you teach something, and it's like, well, like, it, it comes up in the scripture, so you kind of teach it, and you can kind of hold it out here a little bit and kind of teach this thing. Um, and forgiveness isn't like that. It feels like with integrity, if I'm going to talk about forgiveness, then I have to be able to say, 
And to live with this question, God, are there people in my life that I am withholding forgiveness from? Right? I mean, in, in order to just like to let this scripture speak um, to me and to us, I think we need to ask this question, God, are there people that we are withholding forgiveness from them? And um, to just invite the Spirit to search our hearts in that. Um, are, are, is there any sort of bitterness toward a person or a group of people? And we, we just sort of hang on to that, and, and we really don't want, we sort of nurture it, and we don't really want to let it go and, and to forgive it. And uh, if I'm real honest, this last week, yeah, as I've prayed that prayer, God, search me. Is there, are there any of those places in my heart? The Spirit has, has, like, has brought up some circumstances, some, some people. I didn't even really know that they were there, but just felt like this is one of the things that God has been doing in me. And so when light shines into dark places in our hearts, it's much easier to say, no, no, that's not there. That's not real. That's what we want to do. We want to deflect it. Because um, sometimes the light hurts. But we've talked about a number of times that God shines his light into our hearts never to harm us, but to heal us. And so I'd love to just sort of come this morning uh, to this, this message on, on forgiveness. This God who loves to forgive uh, with a sense of humility to say, like, we are all in this together. And we are on this journey together. And so we want to open ourselves up to what the Spirit has to do. Deal? Sound okay? Thumbs up, anybody? All right, awesome. Okay, so Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's stop right there for a second. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Um, just kind of catching up on the story, right? Jonah, reluctant prophet. Uh, God, word of the Lord comes to the prophet, says, go to Nineveh, preach against it because its wickedness has, has sort of come up before me and I want you to do something about it. Remember who Nineveh was, right? Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. These were the most wicked, evil people on the planet at the time. They were the people who invented new ways of torturing and demoralizing people. Howard talked a bit about that last week. And you could go into, he, I mean, he kept it very tame because you can go into like horribly graphic detail about what they did to their enemies. And Israel, um, Jonah's people, were one of their enemies, and so um, Jonah is sent to the cap, to like the heart of the beast, to the capital city, Nineveh, and he's supposed to go and preach a message against the city, preaching against their wickedness. What does Jonah do instead? He runs. He runs away, uh, goes down to Joppa, boards a ship, heads for Tarshish, like the furthest point uh, known to human beings at the time, and, uh, and he's going to get away from God doesn't work out super well for him. A storm comes up, and uh, everybody else is praying. All the pagans on the ship are praying. Where's Jonah? Sleeping. He's sleeping in the bottom of the ship. And so it's this kind of crazy picture of, like, the people who don't know God are calling out to God. The one guy who does know God is being disobedient and running and not praying. Jonah, um, he wakes up. Does he pray? No. What does he do? Kill me. Just kill, and you, what you'll find is that this is Jonah's default setting. When things don't go his way, his response is, just kill me. Like, just end it. So that's what he does. He doesn't repent. He doesn't pray. He just says, kill me. So they throw him overboard. At the, it, there's a picture. Jonah is sinking into the depths of the sea, and all the pagan sailors are worshiping God. Right? So this crazy turn of events. So Jonah is sinking, and God provides this fish as this symbol of, of his mercy, saving Jonah from himself. 
right? The, that's what the fish is. It's a symbol of God's mercy sort of swallowing up and saving him from himself. His running has come to an end. He's in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights. He prays, um, and so God, it says, commands the fish to vomit Jonah out. Like, that's a, that's a great image, isn't it? Like, vomit in the scriptures. The fish vomits Jonah out, and um, I wanted some sound effects or something with that. Um, and so Jonah, he, he's up on the shore now. He's got, Howard talked about this last week, he's got seaweed and fish bile and all that stuff. And my favorite line of the whole book, because th- th- there's funny stuff in here. My, the funniest line to me in the whole book, and nobody else has laughed at this throughout the morning, so I'm not expecting you to, but I just want to share it with you, because I think it's funny, is verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He has just spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, running from God, and God has sort of captured him and brought him back, and God says, let's try this again, Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He goes into the city of Nineveh, and he preaches this half-hearted message. Um, And remember his commission, go to the city of Nineveh, preach against its wickedness. Preach against it. And what does Jonah do? He doesn't mention their wickedness. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention a call to repent. All he says is 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That's his message. Like just, he does the absolute minimum, and, and God uses it. And in fact, the, the Assyrian king, the most, like the pinnacle of evil, this man comes off of his throne, humbles himself before God with this minimal message from Jonah, and the king of Nineveh preaches a better sermon than Jonah does. Preaches this passionate call to repent. And so the whole city of Nineveh is, uh, is repenting, is turning from their evil and their wickedness and their violence and their, their, from the king all the way down to the animals, little like sackcloth for your cat and all that stuff. Um, they're all repenting. It's this crazy image. And here's what, verse 3, chapter 10, and God saw what they did, saw how they turned from their evil, their wickedness, and God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Is this good news? Yes. This is beautiful news. Who is it not good news for? Jonah. Look at how Jonah responds. He has just become the most successful missionary evangelist in all of Israel's history. And this is how Jonah responds. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now, Lord, kill me. Take take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. And I love this. The Lord replies, is it right for you to be so angry? So this is beautiful. Right? I mean, this is, this is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful story. And it is a story about the scandalous mercy of God. I mean, it's a scandalous mercy of God. You see, we, there's, a, there's this old hymn. Um, maybe some of you are familiar with it. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Do you know this song? There's a wideness in God's mercy. And there's a problem with that. And the problem is that sometimes God doesn't know where to stop. I mean, there's like, let's, let's be real. Like, there's an appropriate wideness to God's mercy. And then there's just scandalous mercy. And so for Jonah, like, he, 
he wouldn't exist without God's mercy, right? He, I mean, he wouldn't be here. He would have drowned. Even before that, his whole people wouldn't have existed without God's mercy, right? I mean, it's an act of God's mercy that they exist. And so Jonah says, thank you, God, for your mercy, but here are the boundaries. Here's who, it's good for you to show mercy to me and people like me, but to those people? That's ridiculous. Just kill me. If you're not going to kill somebody, kill me. I don't want anyone to see it. What Jonah is doing here is he is throwing God's identity back in his face. That's what he's doing. This is his prayer, right? He's praying to God, and he's livid. And here, this is the thing he's doing, is he said, God, I've always known you were like this. And you can, I, I, I imagine him praying this with like gritted teeth. I knew it. This is the reason I didn't go to Nineveh in the first place. He reveals, he tips his hand, and he says, I wasn't scared of them. It wasn't that he was afraid of what they would do to him, like that they would sort of shoot the messenger. He was afraid of God's mercy on them because he knew that God was a merciful, compassionate God who loves to forgive. How did he know that? Well, it's because God has always been revealed that way. In, in uh, Exodus chapter 34, this is what, this is what um, Jonah's throwing back in God's face. In Exodus 34, God takes Moses up on the mountain and God's forming this people, this unique group of people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, to be a light to the nations, to, to bring God's healing to the world. That's always been God's plan, is to, is to like, sort of form a group of people in his own image and send them out into the world to share this with everybody else. That's what he's doing. And so he's on the mountain, God is, and he takes Moses and he says, I'm going like, to come before you, Moses, and my glory is going to pass by you, and you're going to see the place where my glory has been. And, and this is what God does. This is this beautiful, intimate interaction between Moses and God. And it says, and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. This is what God says. The Lord, the Lord. And by the way, in, maybe you know this. The word, the Lord, or words, the Lord, in all capital letters, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. And Yahweh is the most personal, the most intimate, the most holy name of God. So what does God do? He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. How does God reveal himself? But as this, I just overflow with compassion, forgiveness, grace, mercy. That's who I am. And so Jonah says, I knew it. I knew, I knew you're, you're, I knew you're going to do it. I knew you were going to forgive them because this is who you are, and I don't like it. Your mercy is unacceptable. And Jonah's furious. And so uh, here's the crazy thing is that um, I think Jonah feels a little bit slighted by God because Jonah, his whole deal has been running from God, like trying to rebel against God, and God has cut him off at every pass. Jonah tries to rebel against, you know, from praying, and what happens? All the pagan sailors are converted and they're worshiping Yahweh. Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh and he does the absolute minimum and he preaches this five-word in Hebrew, eight-word in English sermon, which is this. Um, next slide. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, overturned. And he, God takes this minimal sermon that he gives and he, he uses it to spark this unbelievable re uh, revival among the Ninevites. Now, here's the crazy thing that God does. It, this is my favorite part of the book of Jonah. Guys, you're not supposed to have favorites, but for today, this is my favorite part of the book of Jonah. Um, so go back. So uh, go, go back one slide here for a second. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Here's the brilliance of what God does. 
Jonah preaches this message, and the word for overthrown is the word havech. Everyone say that? Havech. Now you can take your hand and wipe the saliva off the person's neck in front of you, right? It's one of those havech. Um, it comes from down here. So that's the word overthrown. What do you think that word means? Forty more days and the city will be, Nineveh will be overthrown. What does it mean? Destroyed. Okay, absolutely. So here's, a, here's another use. The word havech can, be, can mean to destroy. Here's a use in that way. Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are, everybody said, havech, um, and are no more. Ha- but the houses of the righteous stand firm. So, right, this is, what, this is what this means. It means to destroy. But there's another meaning to the word havech. And it's this, to transform. Here's a usage in the Old Testament like this. Psalm 30, verse 11. You have vech my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. To destroy. Now, which one of these did Jonah mean when he says 40 more days in Nineveh, Nineveh will be havech? Which one did he mean? Destroyed, right? He's waiting for them to be toast. It's the lightning, then the thunder. That's what he's wanting. The second, which one does God mean? To transform. And so Jonah, you can just see him like, I can't get ahead. Even in my, even in my rebellion, God, you keep using it for your own, your own good. This is absolutely beautiful. And so here's the thing. We can start to like look at Jonah, and this is what parables do, right? They, they say, ah, like look at, this, look at this thing over here. Look at this guy. And then all of a sudden, we realize we are that guy. We realize, like, we read the scriptures, but the scriptures actually read us. And and so what Jonah does, what these couple of verses do for us, is they open up this whole window into our soul. That 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 they, they invite us to ask these questions. Like, God, is there anyone in my life that I am waiting for you in some way to bring judgment on them? Like, I'm waiting for them to be destroyed in some way. And maybe I would never admit it. Like, I would never admit that it's in me. But if I was to get news that something, you know, happened to this person, like, not like horrible, but like something happened to this person that just like, oh, it was, I, I, I would feel kind of happy about it. God, is there any person in my life that, if you are going to choose, God, to bring judgment on this person in the form of mercy, if you are going to overthrow, if you're going to sort of turn them around and transform them, that I would be angry about it. Is there any person, is there any group of people that that would be true for? And it just invites us onto the inside to say, you know what, like maybe I'm, I'm a whole lot more like Jonah than I like to admit. Because if I'm really honest, I like mercy for me. It's mercy me, judgment you, right? For those outsiders, like those groups of people, just they're outside the boundaries. And and God has always been revealed as a God who loves to forgive. And ultimately, God is revealed in Jesus, right? And Jesus is the fullest revelation of God the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. If you want to know what God looks like, ultimately look at Jesus. And I would submit that the most radical thing Jesus ever said the most radical thing Jesus ever said was this in Matthew 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, it says, You've heard that it was said, 
love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I mean, this is what Jonah does, right? He loves his people, hates his enemies. This is what everybody does. KU fans, they love KU fans, they hate K-State fans. K-State fans, they love K-State fans, hate KU fans, whatever. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, Jesus is, is speaking something radically new. But I tell you, you who would sit at the feet of Jesus and be his disciples, you who would say, Jesus, I'm choosing to make you Lord of my life. But to you, Jesus says, I tell, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good alike. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, if you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the pagans do that? But be perfect, be mature, be complete as your heavenly Father is perfect, mature, complete. I I would submit that the most radical thing Jesus ever said was not his claiming to be God, because people expected it. They expected the Messiah to come. They expected, you know, God to come among them. The most radical thing he ever said was love your enemies. And here's the crazy thing, is that if you talk to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, has not grown up in the church, has very little knowledge of Jesus, and you ask them, hey, what was Jesus all about? Like, if you're going to just, just tell me, what are your ideas about Jesus, who he was, what he taught? I would almost bet that one of the first things they would say is, well, he was about, like, loving his enemies and stuff. Like, non-Christians, they get this. Like, it's right there on the surface of who Jesus was and what he called his followers to, and yet the church, we find all sorts of ways to dance around this. And to say, well, not my enemies. Not like those people, right? Like, I, surely not those people. Surely I'm exempted from that. Do you know what was the most quoted scripture through the first 300 years of the church? So from the time of Christ, while the church is, is sort of growing, this movement is growing, If you were going to go back and you are going to read the early church uh, fathers and mothers and their writings, the most quoted scripture was love your enemies. That's what they had on their minds. Because it was so unique, it was so radical, this is the the crux of discipleship in the way of Jesus. Because everybody else loves those people who are like them, people who are kind to them. But it is radically unique, is the new thing Jesus is doing in the world is to say love your enemies enemies. If the problem in the human heart is sin, would you agree that that's true? I mean, the problem in the human heart is sin. What is God's solution? To forgive it. If the problem in our world is sin and and the state of rebellion of our hearts, God's solution is not to crush it. It's not to bring punishment. God's solution is to forgive it. To forgive it. This is how God, God is a God who loves to forgive, and it can scandalize us, especially when we've been sort of steeped in this idea of like, no, 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 it's like somebody's got to pay. It's redemptive violence. Every movie we watch um, that has sort of violent, um, all the way from, you know, like action thrillers, even down to like cartoons and stuff, there is this myth that we're being told again and again and again that how you overcome evil is with more evil, with violence. That's that's the way the world works. And Jesus says, but not for you. 
Like, not for you who would sit at my feet and be my disciples. I'm teaching you something brand new, that the way to overcome evil is not with more evil, that violence can never defeat evil. It can't. World history proves that fact again and again and again. Weapons cannot make us feel more secure. They can't. They can't make us feel more secure. This tool that all it knows how to do is steal, kill, and destroy life. It can't make us feel more secure. But do you know the one thing in this world that can? Is the presence of the one who has faced death, who has gone through death, who has transformed death, who has been raised from the dead, who has given us new life, and who has said, I am with you always. And all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Now go and make disciples in my name. This is the only thing in this world that can bring us peace. This is the only thing that can actually overcome cycles of violence and evil in our world. It is people living out this transforming way of Jesus. And I I would submit that this is the crux of Christian discipleship, to choose to follow the way of Jesus, that this promise that when my life is over, when my last breath comes, I believe through to the, to the, the, with my whole being that I will be in the presence of Jesus, my Lord. And so in two weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. We're going to celebrate the day that death died. We're going to celebrate the day that, that the sting of death actually got taken away from us. That the the antidote for Satan's trump card, which is the fear of death, was destroyed by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he sends us out into the world to say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Now move into the world and flood this world with forgiveness. With forgiveness. And sometimes we don't, we don't, the world doesn't have categories for this, this kind of stuff. But it's always been the Christian way, always. Gordon Wilson, uh, here's here's a picture of this guy. Gordon Wilson is, uh, he passed away in 1995, but he uh, lived in Northern Ireland. He lived from 1927 to 1995. In, tor- in the late 80s, Ireland, some of you know this history, Ireland was in a struggle for independence from being a British colony. And, um, and so in the late 80s, there was this group of Irish who kind of rose up, and they were called the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And their, their whole... Uh, idea was to say it was redemptive violence. If we can just do more violence, we can overthrow British rule, and we can be independent. And so what they did uh, on this particular day, on November 8th, 1987, while there was this Remembrance Day celebration planned in the town where Gordon Wilson and his family lived, in fact, he owned a shop right there on the town square, a drapery shop, had for years. And Remembrance Day is kind of the British equivalent of our Memorial Day. And so on this Remembrance Day, they, um, the IRA planted these bombs around the city square. And Gordon was there with his daughter, who was, who was a lawyer. She was an adult. And these bombs went off, and uh, people were killed. Gordon and his daughter were both covered in rubble. And they were close enough to each other that they could actually, while they were buried there under the rubble, they could talk. They could have a conversation. They could actually reach out and, and hold hands. And uh, after hours of being there, uh, rescuers came and freed them. They pulled Gordon out, and he was relatively okay, but his daughter didn't survive. 
And so the BBC, they, they go and they start interviewing uh, survivors, witnesses, and somebody hears about this man, Gordon Wilson, who's relatively unknown. But they said, here's a survivor who lost a child. And they started interviewing him. And this is what, this is what, one, um, what one person says about what Gordon Wilson said. He said, no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his own hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. And those were her exact words to me. And those were the last words I ever heard her say. Now, to the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, quote, I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. Next slide. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful and emotional impact. Now, one year later, uh, there was a, a gathering plan to remember uh, the victims of this bombing. And Gordon Wilson was asked to speak. And he invited representatives from the IRA to come. And in the ceremony, he publicly forgave them publicly forgave them. Um, Ireland gained its independence, and Mary uh, McAllis, who became a president of this freed Ireland, this is how she records this in, uh, in a book that she wrote, records Gordon's impact. His words, they shamed us. They caught us off guard. They seemed so different from what we expected and what we were used to. They brought stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into a place so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But he also had his detractors and unbelievably his bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, they shouted. What kind of a father are you who could forgive your daughter's killers? It was as if they had never heard the command to love and forgive anywhere before. It was as if they were being spoken for the first time in the history of humanity and Christ had never uttered these words. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As one church-going critic said to me on the subject of Gordon Wilson, sure, the poor man must have been in shock, as if to love and offer forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. Gordon's response, one of the things it did is it, it completely changed the headlines. Right? I mean, this could have been, this could have been um, just another reason to retaliate. And the headlines could have kept reading, IRA uh, pulls off another bombing and, and kills these people and all that. And th those headlines could have just kept spinning through the presses. But do you know what the headlines were after he did this? Man chooses to forgive those who killed his daughter. He completely changed the script. While there was havech, there was destruction in his life, evil had come to him, evil was overcome through the power of Christ in him. It was havek transformed. This is what Christ does. Christ takes on, on the cross, he, he takes all the evil, he takes all the violence, he takes all the ugliness in the human heart, and he takes it all onto himself, and you know what he does with it? He havechs it. He transforms it into grace, and he prays this prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And when he's praying that prayer, he's praying for me. 
He was praying for the, for the evil and the ugliness and the sin and the violent tendencies in my own heart. He, he was praying for me. And he's praying for you. So we come to Christ as people who need his forgiveness. Say, like, I am one in need of mercy. And we come to Christ to give the forgiveness. Not that he loves to withhold, but that he loves to give to us. He loves to give. But he wasn't just praying for me, and he wasn't just praying for you, and he wasn't just saying forgive them to those people who we would like to see forgiven. He was actually praying for those people who we wish weren't. For our enemies. For that coworker, that family member, that person who used to be a friend. He was actually praying that prayer. Father, forgive them. For that group of people that we're afraid of. For that other nation. He was praying for them too. And this is the, the scandal of God's mercy and forgiveness. As a people, when we, when we come to Christ to receive forgiveness, we're going to end our service this morning uh, with communion, where we come to the table and we take the bread, which we remember Christ's body that was broken for us. And we remember this, this cup, this, this blood, this new covenant poured out in his blood to form a new kind of people created in the image of Jesus. And we come to it to remember and to receive forgiveness, but we also come so that we could be transformed into people who would be sent out into the world to be people who live the way of forgiveness. We don't just come to receive, we actually come to be changed so that we can be sent out. And that's what a community of faith is. I don't think, uh, I don't think this stuff is possible, honestly, without a community of people, however big, however small, whatever that looks like, but a community of people who are surrendered to the way of Jesus, who are open to the Holy Spirit, who are, who are willing to walk with each other on this journey toward being a people who live out this radical forgiveness of Jesus in the world, who will say, we will not be overcome with evil, but we will overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are. We're people who sit at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, we're your disciples. Before we're anything else, we are your disciples. Form us in your image. And so I want to invite you to come. Um, whether you're a part of Journey or not, this is not Journey's table. This is the table of the Lord. And it's prepared for all who will come. All who will come are welcome. The only requirement is that we admit that we're a sinner. Sometimes it's like, oh, I, can't, I can't take communion. I'm not like, good enough. Well, that's really the only requirement is, is that humble mercy and surrender to Jesus. And so... Um, if you would come, um, you can come forward and come down the, the center aisle and um, be people here to serve you. Uh, is there a table in the back too? Yes. There's a table in the back as well. There'll be servers back there. So you can kind of move to the center and go either forward or back and then back to your seats. There are trash cans on the outside. Um, and then I'd like to just, I'd like to pray for us as the worship team comes up and the servers come. I'd like to just say a prayer, just a moment of reflection as we, as we um, prepare. God, thank you. Jesus, for who you are. God, that you are a God who loves to forgive. That you are the compassionate and gracious God. You're slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Who loves to forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And God, we trust that you forgive our wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And we are so grateful, Jesus, that you have shown us mercy that we do not deserve. And Jesus, we hear your words, Father, forgive them. And we are so grateful for them. Because we were your enemies. And Jesus, you loved us and you forgave us and you welcomed us to your table. So Jesus, we just come as people grateful, grateful to receive it. And God, if there is any person 
that we are withholding mercy from, that we are withholding forgiveness from, that we are carrying a debt against that person in our hearts. Jesus, we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are in debt to us. Jesus, as we come to the table, would we be transformed into people who who look like you in the world, who are courageous, who are bold, who have no fear, who stand in your love and your mercy and extend forgiveness to the world? God, we ask that you could do what only your spirit will do, what only your spirit has the power to do, and that's to transform us into the kind of people who looks like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.